Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. Hey guys, welcome back to the pod. And today's our first episode in the year of the rabbit. For those Chinese listeners, we are actually recording on Chuar. So, 大家新年好,恭喜發財,祝大家家人平安,健康,萬事如意,事事順利。So, you basically did all. But,祝大家身體健康,心想事成。Yeah.你不是很喜歡說那個年年有餘嗎?紅包拿來,哦,年年有餘,還有紅包拿來。Right. For those who aren't Chinese listeners, we wish you wealth, health, and prosperity in the year of the rabbit. I hope it's a big year for whatever you guys are working on. Um, if you follow Jack's <laughs> stories, you'll realize that she was in Miami over the Chinese New Year and is actually on a plane back to Boston, so isn't able to join us here physically, but she is here in spirit. I think I'll introduce today's guest by telling you guys how we actually met. So it was not long after we had Gerald Donovan on the show who was our guest on episode 132. For those um, who listened to that show, you would have heard about a certain piece called the Imperial VFA, which we can bring up again later in this episode. But anyway, not long after that, I was actually scrolling through Instagram and I actually saw a photo of the Imperial VFA. So I clicked into it and it led me to today's guest, Raven, who you've guessed it, actually is the owner of one. And only acquired it quite recently, I may add. And yes, I do believe that Instagram listens to my conversations, <laughs> as well as YouTube and all the other ones. So welcome to the show, Raven. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Right. So I actually think that's a perfect place to start. For those that didn't listen to episode 132, you're in the jail. No, no, I'm joking. <laughs> Why is the Imperial VFA? special the imperial vfa has been uh, a little bit of a legend among vintage seiko collectors uh, especially in the last five or ten years uh, one of them popped up at a boot sale in the uk uh, and made its way into the hands of a seiko collector in london and uh, it was a huge event uh, in terms of high-end seiko vintage pieces because the imperial vfa uh, has inside it the caliber 4580 movement, uh, which is, in my opinion, the highest grade mechanical movement ever made in Japan. Not only does it have Seiko's highest quality vintage movement, these pieces were specially made for the emperor by his own personal commission to be given as state gifts during his visit to Europe in 1971. These were never available for purchase in any store they were never in any Seiko catalog. They were never anything that you would expect to be easy to come by for collectors. Since that one turned up a couple of years ago, uh, two or three others have managed to find their way into the hands of Seiko enthusiasts. And this one has a fantastic story behind it. Uh, there is an antique watch dealer in London uh, who frequently goes to a local antiques fair. For the first time, a dealer showed up that he didn't know, had this watch for sale. Dealer bought it, 
brought it back, listed it on eBay. I was able to find it that night. I was scrolling through eBay. It was about one in the morning. And I saw this watch pop up on one of my safe searches. And I thought, this can't be real. I'm, I'm dreaming. I've already fallen asleep because there just was completely impossible for this watch to be what I was looking at. But eBay has good buyer protection. I thought, you know what? It's late at night. Let me take a chance on something. Uh, it made its way through the mail strike in the UK. It's made its way through customs during Thanksgiving weekend in the United States. And it finally showed up. I opened the box and inside it was, in my opinion, one of the most significant vintage Seiko watches that exists. And uh, I reached out to a couple of experts. Gerald Donovan, of course, gave his opinion as well. Uh, and as far as we can tell, it's real and authentic and probably the fourth known example. Uh, so it was just an amazing way to cap out a year of collecting in 2022. Uh, I've told people I will never have another collecting moment like that. Um, how many pieces were known to be made? It's a great question. Uh, we've actually gone back to Seiko with that question. Uh, and Seiko has told us, yes, we confirm that we made these. Yes, we confirm that they were for the emperor and were given estate gifts during his 1971 trip. And we do not have a record of how many were made. Mm, and yeah. so we don't know is the short answer. Um, you have to imagine the emperor was not carting dozens of these across the world. Mm -hmm. um, whether there were five or whether there were 20, uh, we really don't know. Uh, four have shown up so far. Uh, there's at least one fake one floating around. Uh, so don't buy that one. Um, but, uh, you know, it's entirely possible that in the next 10 years, we'll find 20 more of these. Or it's possible in the next 10 years, we won't find a single one. So for those like who are looking for this, what? how can you tell between the fake one and a, a real one, the fake one floating around? What's the giveaway? So uh, right now, the fake one floating around is uh, not very good. Um, the markings on the dial are actually incorrect. Uh, it says like Japan made instead of having the actual dial, um, dial code at six o'clock. Uh, it has different printing on the case back. But I would say for any vintage watch, look for known good examples. Um, S Watches by SJX has a fantastic article about this piece, which you can go and read lots of great pictures and then be patient. Uh, if something seems too good to be true, it always is, um, except for this one. This was too good to be true and it was real. Uh, and um, just look as closely as you can. Try to see a picture of the insides, try to see the movement. Um, but the truth is there are so few of these, you're going to be a little bit on your own. It's going to be a little bit of luck. Do you think that the dealer that found this knew what he had? So um, what I think is likely true, this is just my view. I, I don't have any knowledge about what was in his head at the time, is that the dealer Googled the watch, found the article from SGX, said, oh, it's a rare Seiko. So as a rare Seiko, instead of being worth like $200, maybe it's worth, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars and listed it on eBay. And of course it, it sold on eBay in, I think something like two and a half hours by the time I found it. So maybe he realized that he could have priced up a little bit more, but I think in all likelihood, um, you know, the, the community of people who are looking for things like this, like almost unbelievably legendary, unobtainable pieces, that were made as part of some state visit. 
it's not going to be the mainstream watch collectors. And so there's no discoverable prices for this. The dealer probably knew it was a rare Seiko, but didn't necessarily know what being a rare Seiko really meant to a Seiko collector. Yeah, actually, um, Mark, when I posted this on my Instagram, Mark Cho, who's uh, been on our podcast as well and founder of co-founder of the Armory, he said he'd been looking for one for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, it's not something that everybody knows about. Uh, so it's not something that you talk about in general conversation. But he, yeah, he just messaged me and he said, I've been looking for one for years and then found one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I think, you know, when, when I was able to post it to Instagram after it showed up, uh, there were a couple of people in the comments who uh, told me when I find the next one to send it to them. Yeah, I think that was me, right? Yeah, it was. <laughs> you're on well, the list. What number was I? Am I on the waiting list? You're on the waiting list. Yeah, you're not number one. I hate to say it. You got to get in there oh, sooner. Oh, I'm not number one. Is it because Gerald Donovan's number one? <laughs> I think the very first person to come to me was actually neither of you two. So um, early bird gets the worm. No way. <laughs> I have a question about... Um serial numbers so do you mm-hmm. think let's just assume they made 20 for example do you think that seiko would have um and i don't know like a like documents that show that this specific one that you have went to which i don't know governor president you know mayor mm-hmm. of which country city so almost all Seikos, and absolutely almost all Seikos of this period, had serial numbers on the back of the case. Mm-hmm. And the serial number had the year and the month of manufacture, as well as um, just a number that, that counted up as watches were made. Uh, and I think actually, uh, Gerald mentioned serial numbers of a very important watch to him when he was on. Mm-hmm. Now this watch, the VFA, does not have a serial number on the case back. Mm. And among watches of this period, that is almost unheard of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because these were never intended for general sale. Okay. Um, the case back is very unique on these. They just say Nippon Seiko. Mm. They don't say Japan. They don't say Grand Seiko. They don't have the movement number on them, nothing. Now inside the watch, the movement does have a serial number. Um, it's actually a very high serial number, but it is a serial number that is very far away from other known examples. So it's not the case that the imperial movements were like 20 sequential uh, serial numbers or anything like that. The serial numbers are quite far apart. Uh, So unless they made a thousand of these, which I think is unlikely, Mm -hmm. uh, the serial numbers aren't going to, aren't going to help at all. Mm, I see. Mm. When you went to Seiko, Mm -hmm. did they say like, yeah, this is cool and everything, but this isn't like the only watch or we actually made something else that is equally like rare but nobody's found out about it yet or you know is this the the zenith of vintage seiko or grand seiko collecting or is there are there other pieces that have yet to be fully exposed i have no doubt that there are pieces floating around out there that no one's run into um i'm simply too much of a romantic to believe that that's not true uh this piece actually straddles right on the edge of the things that i typically consider collectible um I'm mostly interested in production watches, watches that were made for sale. Because to me, that's what's most interesting about the history of watches. On the other end of that, you have things like prototypes. Uh, So for example, Seiko made prototype watches with very high beat movements in them. Um, Eight hertz, 10 hertz, I think, if I remember correctly. I'm sure someone will correct me if I don't. Um, 
those prototypes were never actually sold to the public. This is kind of in the middle. So this was not sold to the public. It was not commercial, but it was intended for general use. Like this is a watch that was ex you would expect someone to be given and then wear as something like that was actually intended for use. So it's right on the edge of rarity and um, kind of general uh, exposure compared to things like Seiko prototypes, which maybe they made one of, and it slipped out of the factory at some point and then made it onto the market somewhere. Uh, we have a couple of those floating around that we know exist. And for those, I'm certain there are things out there that we don't know about. Right. Okay. So keep our eyes posted. Um, except Always. You're only gonna... You're only going to tell us once they're actually in your collection, though. <laughs> That's how best I can exhibit them. Right. But um, the story is great, right? But that isn't the thing that just interests you, right? You kind of hinted at it. It's a VFA. What is it about VFA that interests you? So Sega's VFA line uh, was very special. Um Back in the 1960s and into the early 1970s, Seiko had a transformation of how they made mechanical watches. Uh, they went from kind of casing up movements from other manufacturers to making their own movements, to making their own very high grade mechanical movements. The VFA series was the absolute top. It was above Lord Marvel, it was above King Seiko, it was above Grand Seiko, it was above Grand Seiko Special. And VFA in most of their models was guaranteed to two seconds per day. That is very nearly the tightest spec, the tightest guarantee that's ever been given to a mechanical production watch. There are a couple exceptions, but that's pretty much it. Uh, of course, one of the exceptions was there's ladies VFA, which we'll talk about later, uh, which was not guaranteed to two seconds per day. But among their production watches and among all watches made in the 1960s that didn't use a battery, two seconds per day was the tightest spec that was ever guaranteed. And so for me, a lot of my collecting interest is on the history of how did they make accurate watches, not just Seiko, but the entire industry. And then how did they market those watches' accuracy? Seiko made a big deal about their watches' accuracy when they marketed the VFA. It was very important to them. And it was how they distinguished the various grades in their collection, from Lord Marvel to King Seiko to Grand Seiko to VFA. It was all about the accuracy. It was very prominent in their catalogs. Uh, it was very prominent in terms of um, how the watches were tested and constructed. And so to me, not only is it the history of this watch, it was made for the emperor, it went to Europe, uh, but it's what's inside. It's the fact that it is a true VFA movement. Uh, and in my opinion, the greatest VFA movement that Seiko ever made. Right, okay. So, oh, you've got a question there, Long. Yeah, it's, I'm trying to think of how to explain this without it sounding weird. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it's two parts. First part is as a factory, um, or as a brand, right? You know, you have the capabilities to make something up to two seconds, um, you know, um, leeway, right? So why mm -hmm. don't you just make everything up to that standard? That's the first part of the question. Second part is, I'm not really sure about Japanese people in the culture, but do you think Seiko collectors are the type that um, 
look at themselves and they say, I don't think I am like worthy of wearing this like two second range. Maybe I'm going to buy a Grand Seiko instead. Mm -hmm. So I'll answer the first question yeah. very simply, uh, which is that it's much more difficult. Okay. Uh, so for a lot of these movements, um, to get something into that two second per day range required very, very laborious, very, very skilled adjustment. It was not something that they could crank out. Um, I've seen estimates around VFA production that the 4580, for example, was made in fewer than a couple hundred pieces in total across all the different case styles. Um, part of that probably has to do with market demand. These things were priced very expensive, but part of it also probably has to do with how difficult they were to make. Mm -hmm. That's true across all the different VFAs, including the ladies' VFA. But to answer your second question, I mean, I'm certainly not going to claim to be an expert on Japanese culture either. Mm -hmm. um, I would expect that a lot of the decision around whether to buy a VFA or a Grand Seiko or a King Seiko is very similar to a modern day consumer's choice of whether to buy a Patek or a Rolex or a Tudor or a T-cell. Mm. It just came down to price. And are you someone who cares about having the pinnacle of a watch mm -hmm. on your wrist? Mm. And it comes back to even before the wristwatch era in the very, very early 1900s, 1900, 1910, 1920, pocket watch makers in the United States were producing halo pieces pieces that were supposed to be the absolute finest pocket watch ever made in the hemisphere. Mm. And Waltham made them, Howard made them, Gruen made them, and they cost hundreds of dollars in like 1910. That's equivalent to tens of thousands of dollars today. Mm. And they were more carefully adjusted than other pieces, mm. but they were also just much, much more expensive. Mm. Hmm. Okay. So Raven's put a pocket watch onto the screen for our listeners. What is that exactly? So this is um, Waltham's. Waltham was one of the major American pocket watch makers. This was the Waltham Premier Maximus, which they made in 1908. And I want to just savor the kind of company that would name one of their products the Premier Maximus. Mm. It tells you a lot about what they were trying to do with this piece. This piece was the finest pocket watch Waltham ever made. And it is, to my knowledge, the very first time that a production timepiece, production portable timepiece, was offered in series, advertised to the public with an observatory chronometer certificate, mm. uh, which is a much, much higher grade of accuracy guarantee and testing than a standard chronometer. Mm. They made 201 of these in the first series. They cost as much as $700 in the early 1900s, like 1908 is when they were released. And so um, a lot of people will be familiar with Seiko's observatory chronometers from the late 1960s. This brings it back 60 years earlier. And so this is kind of in my mind, the start of my collection of historically precise timepieces mm. is when Waltham made 201 of these in the United States put them all on a boat, had the boat take them all the way to England where they were tested, given a certificate, shipped back to the United States for sale without losing that accuracy. That's not easy to do. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, these sold terribly. They were still trying to sell these 15 years later, but they weren't discounting them. They said, this is our finest watch. It is our halo watch. It's going to cost as much as it possibly can. It's going to require months and months of careful adjustment to get it to hit that certificate. Um, and hey, if you don't want a Premier Maximus, you can buy a Riverside Maximus or a standard Premier or any of our other grades of watches if you come in and decide this is not the one for you. Mm -hmm. Oh, I know what I want to ask. Um, before we even interviewed Gerald and kind of went to explore Grand Seiko, we kept wondering why would anyone get into Grand Seiko? Like we could never understand, like I, I think we're still struggling to understand this to some extent. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I would someone, agree. Yeah. yeah. And for someone like you, obviously you you love watches. I mean, you're buying stuff that no one I, I didn't even know this existed until until you showed me <laughs> this, right? So how did you decide, hey, let me go explore the eastern side of the world or Japan, you know, when you already you already have access to like amazing stuff. And there's also mm -hmm. stuff I, I think just within the US that will keep your hands full, right? So mm -hmm. yeah. So for me, um, most of my interest, not all of it, but most of my interest is in chronometry, right? How do you make a precision timepiece and how do you measure precision timepiece? That goes all the way from early 1900s to modern atomic clocks. And so one thing that was very significant historically in that were these observatories. So in the first half of the century, all the way up until about 1969, there are observatories in England and Switzerland that would hold competitions and manufacturers would put together their finest possible movement, never intended for sale, never even intended to put in a case. They would build a movement, they would send it to the observatory. The observatory would test the movements and they would award prizes. So for example, you may be familiar with Omega on a lot of their, their constellations, they have that logo with the, um, the big telescope and the stars in the sky. The stars represent their victories in those observatory competitions in the 1950s. Mm. That's what those stars are there for. So brands traded significantly on these competitions, European brands. It was very important to them. And then in a story that's very popular among Grand Seiko collectors, Seiko came to these competitions in the 1960s and performed very well. They actually performed very well. And in the final years of the competition started sweeping it. And a lot of it was based on that same movement architecture that we saw in the Imperial VFA. Mm. The Swiss immediately shut down the competitions at that point, said, no more, mm. we're done with these. Um, but for me, that was a really significant moment. And that's why I'm very interested in those high precision pieces that Seiko was making. It wasn't just Seiko. A uh, citizen made their glorious citizen, no relation to Grand Seiko, I'm sure. And uh, it was specced um, at, I believe, uh, minus two plus three seconds per day. So still a very, very tight spec. So to me, any manufacturer which is offering and guaranteeing and advertising against these very tight accuracy specs is something of interest. Mm -hmm. It was happening in the US, it was happening in Europe, it was happening in Japan. Um, I am not certain if it was happening in China because I have not found a lot of contemporary Chinese watch advertisements from the 1960s, but I'm planning to look. Um, but all of those things anywhere in the world that it was happening are very interesting to me. 
Okay. Okay. <clears throat> the way you approach watches is, uh, well, I've never met a collector quite like that. I mean, we all have interest in chronometry, but we haven't based it, the whole kind of a philosophy of collecting on it, on as a backbone of it. Um, so I'm quite interested to know, how did you get into watches? Sure. Um, it is, I'm going to dare to say an unusual story. Um, so when I was in college, I was part of the college's science fiction and fantasy club. <laughs> and among the many wonderful things that we did, one of the things we did was a little gathering to celebrate daylight saving time. So in the U.S., uh, we roll the clocks forward one hour in the spring and backward one hour in the fall, similar to summertime in other parts of the world. And uh, one of the things that happened was that people would give speeches or mini lectures or things like that about time and time measurement. So a history of timekeeping devices, uh, historically significant clocks, um, understanding how clocks were used in ship navigation, uh, how general relativity and Einstein's theories impact timekeeping, all of these things were discussed. And I got really interested in time measurement when that happened. Uh, during college, I built a pendulum clock out of connects, which are a, a children's building toy. Uh, I was about six and a half feet tall, kept accurate time for about 10 minutes. And I got really interested in timekeeping. So that was college. And then eventually I finished college and had to get a job. And when I had a job, I thought, hey, wouldn't it be useful if I had a wristwatch? So when I was in meetings or something, I didn't have to take out my cell phone or look around the room trying to find a clock. Uh, so I uh, picked up a couple of wristwatches. They were mostly um, inexpensive pieces in the context of what we're talking about, uh, but they had you know, a Seiko 5, um, a diver from a micro brand, um, a sturdy quartz watch, uh, kind of the things you would expect someone who was starting to get interested in watches might have. And what I found was I was so interested in essentially whether they were doing a good job or not. Were they keeping accurate time? Most of them had mechanical movements. Um, how could I test if they were keeping good time? So of course I got a time grapher one of those electronic devices that will listen to your watch and say if it's fast or slow. But then I thought, you know, that's not really good enough. That's not who I am. Just take a watch and put it on the microphone and get the answer. So instead, uh, for Christmas one year, I asked for a biological sample lab incubator, which is the device they use in biological labs to keep things at a fixed temperature if they're growing cell cultures or, or so, I don't know what they do. And I would replicate the 15 day chronometer trials that were done at COSC in my apartment. So I'd put the watches face up at 23 degrees Celsius for two days, then face down at 23 Celsius for two days, then on its side and then at 38 Celsius. And uh, I would essentially go through the full chronometer test with my watches. And about halfway through this, I decided, you know what, I think as a collector, I'm kind of interested in precision timekeeping. I feel like I've gotten enough hints for my behavior here to say, you know, this is what I'm interested in. Mm. And from then on, a lot, not all, but a lot of my watch collecting has been focused on that. Okay. Wow. Uh, uh, you must be the only person that asked for something like that for, for Christmas, <laughs> maybe. 
the um the distributor that the maker of these things was very confused when they heard that um <laughs> that we wanted to buy one it's like what do you mean you want to buy one like surely you're buying this for a lab you need 10 of them it's like no actually we're we're buying this to to measure mechanical wristwatch accuracy we only need one <laughs> right okay um you've mentioned that you know you collect through your history of chronometry and your fascination of that which brands in your opinion did the most to advance chronometry it's a great question um so i would say across history the most significant brand and the most significant decade was gerard parago from 1965 to 1975 if you had to pick a single brand and a single decade in the advancement of chronometry, that would be it. No question. Okay. Explain. You want to Explain, hear more? Because a lot of people are scratching their head right now. Yeah, like, absolutely. Uh, I, think, I think also you've given a pedigree to G GP where a lot of people nowadays think, how does that brand even survive? Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. So please explain. So in 1965... Uh, Gerard Perigo created the first production wristwatch that ticked 10 times per second. So beat rates in, in wristwatches had been creeping upward very slowly. Um, in the pocket watch era, they were typically uh, five ticks per second. They moved up to six ticks per second or three hertz with early wristwatches. Then high beat wristwatches ticked uh, eight times a second. They were four hertz. 1965, Maybe 1966, I haven't decided yet, uh, Gerard Pergo released the Caliber 30. And the Caliber 30 was based on an A-shield movement that GP modified to tick twice as fast. This was a historic leap forward in high-precision wrist-based chronometry. Because with the balance wheel that was moving much faster and ticking much faster, the influence of gravity, the influence of movement, the influence of shock was all reduced. And so it became possible, not easy, but possible to mass produce watches that met much, much tighter accuracy guarantees. I have a, um, it's one of my favorite things. I have a complete booklet that would have been sent to a watch dealer by GP in the late 1960s with all of their advertising materials. So uh, leaflets to mail out to customers, a sign to display in the shop, um, a script to air on a television advertisement. And they all are focused on this development of high frequency. And they are all focused on the guarantee of two seconds per day. It was the first time in history, a non-electronic wristwatch received that guarantee. This wristwatch, um, from GP specifically is an observatory chronometer, one of 662 that they made, where they said, you know what, you know those observatory competitions I talked about, where brands would, would put together some special movement that, that was just for the competition? GP didn't do that. They took over 600 of the movements that they were just going to sell to customers, and instead they sent them to the observatory. The observatory passed them as observatory chronometers, and then GP cased them up and sold them. They charged uh, about $400 in the 1960s for this watch. Mm. They earned the centenary prize from the Neuchatel Observatory for doing this um, because doing it in this scale had just been impossible before we had five Hertz movements. So GP, 
This was the swan song of high precision mechanical watchmaking. Uh, after this, everything really started moving towards quartz for precision timekeeping. Um, and other manufacturers started doing this. Uh, Zodiac, Doxa, and Favreluba all use the same movement as GP. Um, Longines developed their own five hertz movement, the Ultracron, uh, which they now brought back in their modern diver reissue. Uh, Seiko, their 4580, the same movement in the Imperial VFA, also moved to a five hertz movement. That's how it got such high accuracy. Mm. Um, so the, the landscape of high precision wristwatches in the late 60s until maybe 72, 73 was dominated by this innovation from GP. And that is only one of the three very significant things that GP did in that decade. Okay. okay. What are the other two then? Yeah, what are the other two? So the next important thing that GP did was they developed what is today the absolute standard for quartz movements. So very famously, Seiko, Christmas Eve, 1969, they push out the Astron, the first commercially sold quartz watch. But the Astron, despite being the first, is not very good. It has a low precision quartz crystal inside. They were barely better than prototypes. A lot of them were returned for service and not working. That Christmas Eve release, 100 pieces, was really just to get in front of the Swiss and say Seiko was first. And they were, fair play to them. In 1971, GP released um, the first modern quartz wristwatch. It had a 32 kilohertz oscillator, same that pretty much every quartz watch has today. You see that 32 kilohertz in watches you buy from Target all the way up to watches from FP Journe. Uh, and it had a stepper motor uh, that moved the hands once per second. So GP released that in 1971, maybe 72. Uh, and a bunch of brands started using it, most famously JLC. Uh, so J.J. Lecoultre's uh, first quartz watches um, were the Beta 21. The second were this movement from GP. Uh, J.J. Lecoultre did not start making their own quartz uh, movements for quite some time. So GP set the standard for accurate quartz watches in 1971. The final thing that they did, which I think is so interesting, uh, in 1975, they released the Laureato. And this was the first quartz watch to be certified as chronometer by COSC. So COSC, of course, as everyone uh, sees them these days, is the Swiss organization that certifies chronometers. They were formed in 1973. They only certified mechanical chronometers from 73 to 75. In 75, GP was the very first to receive a quartz chronometer rating from COSC. And that set the stage for European high accuracy quartz. The Japanese, by the way, had already been making high accuracy quartz watches for three years at that point, and they were very good. But this was the first time there was an independent certification from COSC for a mass produced quartz watch. Uh, and that I think is um, a big step forward in how people thought about quartz timekeeping. And the Laureato is a, a beautiful watch. Um, I don't have it here on the scope, but uh, it's it's just lovely. Okay, so which watch is the most accurate then? Is it a quartz watch then? So I'm going to say yes with an asterisk because there's always an asterisk. So there are two manufacturers. Um, Hoptroff is the, the better known one. 
um, that have actually put real atomic clocks on someone's wrist. And they're about the size of a deck of playing cards. So they are technically a wristwatch and they are accurate to about one second per millennium. Um, they have a, a running time of just under a day and they're not very, uh, not very much fun to wear. If you put those aside, the next piece would be the Citizen 0100. The Citizen 0100 was a piece that was released, I wanna say in 2019, that is accurate to one second per year. It is the most accurate quartz wristwatch ever made. And aside from those wrist-mounted atomic clocks, the most accurate wristwatch ever made. Uh, this is their mother of pearl dial, which I thought was the, the most attractive. Uh, it doesn't actually run in spec, unfortunately. It runs about minus 1.4 seconds per year based on my testing, but uh, it's pretty close. Okay. Um, I remember this interview I watched with Roger Smith, right? And he was talking mm -hmm. about on Hedinki and he had an Omega Marine chronometer. And mm -hmm. he was the story that I was listening to was that, you know, the Swiss watch industry were in trouble because, you know, they were getting mass attacked by the Japanese brands and that this was extremely accurate. Can you just educate me on that piece, please? Yeah, I can. Uh, the marine chronometer was a, I almost want to say it was an experiment from Omega. I think it's almost fair to call it that. Uh, they released it, I want to say in 1973. And it was the first wristwatch that had a quartz crystal inside that instead of vibrating thousands of times per second, vibrated millions of times per second. Now you remember I mentioned that just going from four hertz to five hertz in mechanical watches was a revolution in accuracy. So you can imagine going from a thousand hertz to a million hertz, a similar revolution in accuracy. The problem is making those quartz crystals that vibrate that fast is really hard. Uh, when I was trying to learn about the marine chronometer, I actually reached out to a friend of mine who's a geologist and we talked about the crystal properties of quartz crystal and the different ways you cut the crystal to change how it vibrates. Uh, cutting a crystal in a way that they did in the marine chronometer, very difficult, very expensive. Uh, the marine chronometer experiment from Omega lost a lot of money. It was not a commercial success. They did not make very many of these. Uh, the reason I think they're so interesting is because marine chronometer actually, um, just like observatory chronometer, means a specific thing. Uh, back in all the way back in the 1700s, there were standards set for how accurate a clock had to be to keep navigation on an ocean going ship. That's where a marine chronometer comes from. There were these clocks that you would put on a ship so you'd know what time it was. Omega's marine chronometer was the first wrist mounted timekeeping device that could pass those tests. And it was tested at the observatory at Besançon, France. They certified, I don't know, maybe a couple thousand of these. Mm. Um, and they were very accurate. They were fantastic watches. They cost a fortune and Omega was still losing money. Uh, so they, they shut this program down after only a couple of years. Um, they actually made a prototype. They made two. They made two prototypes of a watch with a 4 million vibrations per second quartz crystal. This is 2.4 million. Uh, one of those prototypes is owned by a collector in the UK. Uh, the other is part of my collection. 
Mm-hmm. And um, those never got off the ground, unfortunately, and into production. Mm-hmm. Can I kind of go back to GP for a second? And mm-hmm. uh, we can also talk about Omega, but I kind of have a really dumb question. Um, you surely have friends around you who are also either already in watch, like love watches or trying to get into the hobby, right? And I would say very yeah. little, okay, very <laughs> little. a few. Okay, so say there there is someone that's about to get into this hobby and they're mm-hmm. exploring and they say to you, um, which brand should I look at? Would you tell them to look at GP based on what you already know? Or how would you even describe modern GP to them? When they when they look at GP and they tell you like, hey, what like what is this brand message? I don't understand. Mm-hmm. How would you describe mm-hmm. GP? I would describe modern GP as having essentially nothing to do with the GP of 65 to 75 that I'm talking about. Okay. okay. Pretty much nothing. And that's actually true of a lot of brands, which is in some ways a little sad, right? Yeah. Um, GP is one example. The, some of the best known examples, of course, are Omega and Longines, mm-hmm. uh, who were making extremely forward thinking marvels of microengineering all the way from the 40s to the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a project to acquire the the most significant Omega wristwatch from every decade, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it stops in the 1980s because the 1980s Omega kind of changed into Omega owned by Swatch. Mm -hmm. I have nothing against Omega owned by Swatch. I I really don't, Mm -hmm. but they are not producing the same kinds of pieces of engineering that Omega Omega did. Okay. So I would say to someone who's looking to get into watchmaking, or excuse me, someone who's looking to get into watch collecting yeah. and is interested in chronometry, but wants to focus on modern pieces, mm. I would say the best places to look um, would include Citizen. Citizen is making the world's best high accuracy watches at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, or if not Citizen, uh, if they have a bit more to spend, then either Rolex or Patek. Uh, Rolex makes a million watches a year spec to two seconds per day. That's an out- absolutely outstanding achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, and modern Patek tourbillons are spec even tighter. Um, I believe they are minus 1.4 to plus 2.4, mm-hmm. which makes them the tightest spec traditional mechanical watch ever made in history. Okay. Um, uh, those are those are pricey though. So I usually steer yeah. people to Citizen or Rolex. Okay. So what would be your holy grail then? My holy grail. Um, I've had the very, very good privilege to acquire a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say there are still some pieces out there that I'm looking for that uh, I don't know if I will ever find. Mm-hmm. One of them I'll just mention to me is very interesting. Uh, it is the uh, the Jubilee Rolex Prince from the 1930s. Jubilee Rolex Prince. Okay. Okay. So Rolex in the 1930s was a very different company than they are today. Mm-hmm. But two things were true. They made excellent, accurate watches, mostly buying movements from Egler and then casing them, but that's fine. And they were very focused on how they were marketed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the 1930s, the Rolex Prince was Rolex's highest end line and they were rectangular watches. Mm-hmm. And um, for the King's Jubilee celebration, 
in London, Rolex released a line of 500 Prince watches. It was a limited edition. And there was a lottery to be able to purchase one. Mm. So when you think about now, how people talk about Rolex waiting lists and how difficult it is to buy Rolex at retail. Back in the 1930s, if you wanted a limited edition Rolex, you had to enter a lottery to buy one. There were 500. um, And Rolex specifically advertised that they were all series certified chronometers. So you can imagine for a woman like me who collects based on chronometry, when she hears special series certified chronometers, I'm like, well, that sounds fantastic. Um, so it was the, it was the reference 1862 prints. Uh, there are lots of 1862 princes out there, but only certain serial numbers, 501 to 1000 are part of this Jubilee release. Um, I've, I'm aware of two. One of them was in the collection of a friend um, and which is no longer available. And one is actually on eBay right now with a refinished style. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, which is the only reason why it's still on eBay and yeah. not sitting here on my desk. Um, so I don't know if I will ever find one of those uh, that's in good shape and, and all original. Uh, and if I don't, that's fine. I'll keep looking. But when you talk about grails, for a vintage watch collector, it's not about the cost, right? Many of my grails, you know, things that I was not sure I would ever find, um, cost less than a thousand dollars when I did find them. Um, it's about knowing that these things are out there. We have documentation, we have evidence that they're out there, uh, but that doesn't mean you'll ever have a chance to see one. Mm. Right. Um, I want to move on to like brands making constant force mechanisms because you know they are designed or they're the idea behind them is about accuracy right Mm -hmm. it's all about accuracy um but you know how accurate are they and how successful are they in terms of the things that they're trying to actually market so constant force mechanisms are awesome ideas i'm a huge fan of um the, the Grandfeld Vermontua, for example, I think is a fantastic watch. Um, GP, of course, has their constant force escapement, which is their own design. Um, we've seen uh, Fusée and Chains pieces getting popular. I think Langa has some, as well as some independents. These are, in my view, mostly done today as, I'm not going to say marketing gimmicks because I don't think they are marketing gimmicks but as complications that are interesting for their own sake. So for example, if you have a modern watch with a moon phase, the moon phase is interesting on its own. It's nothing to do with the timekeeping of the rest of the watch. Uh, Same for a minute repeater. If you will watch with a minute repeater today, that's just its own cool thing. Modern constant force escapements, I believe, are exactly the same. They are They stem from what was originally intended to improve precision, but today they are mostly used as their own interesting thing. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is because I am not aware, at least today, of any wristwatch with a constant force mechanism that has a stated accuracy tighter than what brands were doing in the 1960s with standard mechanical movements and just a lot of like elbow grease adjusting them. So yes, if a, um, if, if a brand came out with a, a mechanical watch 
using the Ramantua that they said this is good to 0.75 seconds per day because of not only the labor we put into adjusting it, but also the mechanisms and the complications we've used. That would be a huge achievement in my eyes. But even if you look at um, like Grand Seiko, for example, recently released at auction, their very fancy tourbillon, constant force, most accurate Grand Seiko ever made, it's still not specced any tighter than what they were making in the 1970s, which did not have tourbillons. It did not have constant force escapements. It did not have thousands of hours of computer-aided design. It just had watchmakers sitting down adjusting them. So in my mind, a modern constant force escapement it's a, it's a great toy. It looks really cool. I think it's a neat thing to have in a watch. It is not really related to making the watch more accurate um, because the brands are not, they're not specking the watches more accurate. Okay. So that actually touches something that I discussed with you earlier uh, off this call, which was, okay, like it's not really relevant now because actually, you know, watches aren't really relevant as they are, you know, back before when, you know, we didn't have like phones and you know, these, these other ways of like knowing the time. But then you said, you mentioned to me that even when they, you know, in the 1920s, 30s, you know, if you were marketing your brand on accuracy, it wasn't actually the best way to market the brand either, because that also, you know, back then it wasn't even a priority then, right? It was, you said like, um, you know, shock resistant even being you know water resistant you know like rolex have done so well just on being water resistant right mm -hmm. um so when we talk about a brand like seiko which spent so much time focusing on accuracy do you think you know that was a smart thing to do in your opinion because it doesn't seem like the market at any point really cared about it enough I'll put it as a priority number one mm -hmm. you know um, and in that respect, the very topic we're talking about is a very, uh, how can I say, I don't want to use the word advanced, but it's such, since it's not the priority, if you really like watches, it's probably like third or fourth priority, mm -hmm. right. In the purchase decision of a watch. Right. Mm -hmm. So do you think it's a really good way for like brands to market that, that way? So I guess what I would say is when I think back to how watches were marketed before the quartz crisis, so all, all the way between like the 1920s when wristwatches for men started becoming popular. Of course, ladies have been wearing wristwatches for decades before that, all the way up to the 1970s. The most important thing for most watch buyers, I will claim, was having a watch that was reliable, inexpensive, and easy to maintain. And that worked for the majority of consumers. I think when you look at brands that were marketing based on accuracy, that's how they were marketing their top end lines. So think about Omega. Omega, I love coming back to Omega. They did so many things. In the 1950s, let's say, maybe 1960s, Omega had segmented their brand. They had Geneve. The Geneve line was their bargain line. No chronometer certificates, no solid gold cases, there are some interesting exceptions to those. Um, but basically, it was a watch that would be reliable. It had the Omega brand on it if you didn't want to buy a Tissot, um, and it would work. And then you move up to their Seamaster line. And the Seamaster line uh, was more durable, more waterproof. 
um, maybe built up a little bit bulkier. It wasn't until you got into Constellation that Omega really started trading on the watch's accuracy, chronometer certificates, the stars in the sky representing their observatory achievements. Uh, so for watch buyers who were spending much more money on a watch, at that time, mostly what you were buying with that money was precious metal, maybe a couple of complications, but probably not. And the idea that your watch was more accurate than other people's. And for some people that was enough. Just being able to say, hey, you know what? My watch is a constellation. What's your watch? And I don't think there's any problem with that. And I think if you look at Seiko, you look at Omega, you look at um, GP, uh, GP in the 1960s, most of their watches were not observatory chronometers. Most of them were 17 jewel automatic watches that were perfectly fine uh, and entirely unremarkable. They only made 662 of these. Um, and so I think that the watches that they were targeting with advertisements based on accuracy were limited in number. It was their very highest end stuff. And it was for people who wanted to, to have the best product. And there are always in history going to be people who want to have the very best. We have them today and we had them a hundred years ago. They were the people buying the Waltham Premier Maximus because it was the best. Mm. The right. advertising materials for the Premier Maximus describe it as the gift for a prince. Um, mm. And so that's how people, people marketed it. Right. We're coming to uh, my last question now which is, you know, our friendship grew because you were actually in search of some Chinese watches. This was mm -hmm. after I expressed my interest in the uh, Imperial VFA. And uh, I introduced you to a platform in China called Xianyu, which you then in turn, you know, asked me to help you facilitate, you know, three watches, mm -hmm. watches that you've been searching for years. So mm -hmm. what makes you interested in these Chinese watches? So I'm going to tell you a story about these watches, because I think it's such an interesting story. And of course, you've heard this story before, so you'll, um, you'll get to enjoy it again. Uh, in 1960, Belova in the US released the Accutron, the first tuning fork watch. Uh, it was at that time by far the most accurate watch in the world. It was guaranteed to two seconds per day. You'll hear that number a lot in chronometry. That's kind of the standard cutoff, I guess, for some reason. Manufacturers assume no one cares past a minute a month. Uh, the Accutron was revolutionary. Uh, it sold extremely well in the U.S. despite its expense. Um, it led to the very popular Space View variant where you, they remove the dial. You can see the electronics inside. Nikita Khrushchev, um, who was head of the Soviet Union, received as a state gift an Accutron. According to legend, uh, he took it back to the first Moscow watch factory and told the watchmakers, make these, make one of this. And then at the first, watch, first Moscow watch factory, they took apart Khrushchev's Accutron, reverse engineered it and started making the pieces there in Moscow. And they created the Slava transistor, which was an unauthorized Soviet clone of the Belova Accutron. Uh, they're not very good. They're not very reliable. Turns out they're really hard to make. Uh, the techniques for making the smallest wheels inside the Accutron are still trade secrets for Belova. No one knows how they did it. Um, the Slavas do exist today, and they exist in the Western market. They're 
very common on eBay at this point. They were a lot less common 20 years ago. Uh, at this point, if you want a Slava transistor, it's not hard to get. You can even get some that are running. Now, aside from that, maybe eight years ago, I stumbled across a post on a watch forum of someone who had produced a tuning fork watch from Tianjin. And there's a legend behind this one as well, which is even less likely, which is that uh, in the 1960s, an American U-2 spy plane was shot down over China. This is true. We know that all of the U-2 spy planes had Accutron clocks inside them. Shortly after this event occurred, Tianjin started making in small number tuning fork watches that were clones based off of the Belova Accutron 214. Now, do I believe that they reverse engineered that, that watch movement from the shot down American spy plane? I do not. I think it's much more likely they walked into any mall and just bought one of these watches, but it's a great story. Um, so I stumbled across this post, no one had known this existed and collectors in the West were trying to get these out of China. And unfortunately it's not very easy to do. Uh, we just don't have good platforms for Western watch collectors to make the kinds of connections they need to do that, which is why I'm so grateful, uh, Dan, that we were able to do it. So I found this and I started looking for it. Maybe one would be listed on some Western platform that I could access. I mentioned this to a friend of mine, maybe three years ago. And he went onto a different Chinese platform, not Shanyu, and uh, produced one. I said, oh, you mean this? And my world was rocked. And I said, yes, exactly that. And then he said, well, what about this one? And he sent me a picture of a different tuning fork watch, also made at Tianjin. That was a copy of the Belova Caliber 230, their ladies tuning fork. And I said to him, congratulations. No one has ever seen that before. Then I got up and like walked around my apartment for 20 minutes, a little bit losing my mind um, because I had encountered for the very first time in a long, long time, a tuning fork watch that I had not known existed. We know it is not an exact copy of the Accutron 230. There are small changes in the location of certain screws, of certain arbors. Um, and whenever I'm able to get my hands on it, the first thing that's gonna happen is my watchmaker will take the Belova version and the Tianjin version apart side by side and document all the differences that they did when they copied this movement. And I'm so interested to see what's different um, because no one, as far as I know, in the West has ever seen one before. Okay, so basically you're saying my name is etched in history now. I think it is. <laughs> right. I actually think it is. Among, uh, you know, the eight people who care about these watches. <laughs> That's enough. That's enough. Um, I'll, I'll just have a little follow-on from that. You say tuning fork watches. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? So tuning fork watches are one of the wildest ideas in watchmaking that actually worked. I can tell you there are a lot of really out there ideas in watchmaking that ends up not working. This is not one of them. So imagine you have a tuning fork that you would use in music. And you hit the tuning fork, it makes a perfect, let's say a natural sound or whatever note and you use it to tune your piano or your instrument or, or whatever purpose. Tuning forks are very precise, which means that if you hit the tuning fork, it's gonna make that precise note it's not going to be off a little bit. Some days it's sharp, some days it's flat. They're very good. And so in the 1950s, Max Hetzel 
uh, who was a Swiss engineer working for Belova, was given the task of making a wristwatch that kept time not using a balance wheel, which oscillates at a reasonably constant rate, but instead keeping time using a tuning fork. If you have a tuning fork that you know vibrates 360 times per second, you can use that to make a watch. You just add enough gears so that the 360 times per second gets the hands going around at the right speed and you're done. Well, it sounds easy. Turns out it was very difficult. Um, they had to use special metal alloys in the fork to try to keep it from expanding with temperature. Uh, they had to think about, well, if you turn the fork upside down, then the force of gravity is different. So it changes the rate by about nine and a half seconds per day. You have to think about if the, um, if the humidity changes, then the frequency of the fork changes because the air is heavier. So they thought about all these things. And eventually they figured out how to make a wristwatch that has a tuning fork inside it, a real tuning fork. If you hold these watches up to your ear, you hear them humming just like a real tuning fork. They make noise. Um, they made a version for musicians, one of these watches specifically for musicians, where the tuning fork inside was tuned to exactly a 440. It was tuned exactly to like the standard tuning for an orchestra. So if you were a musician wearing a beloved, um, oh my gosh, 224, uh, you could hold it up to your ear and you could tune that way. So these tuning fork watches um, were the most accurate watch ever made at that point, which is why I'm so interested in them. Uh, they were made by Belova. Uh, Citizen actually made some of the parts for Belova. So Citizen made tuning fork watches of their own under license. Universal Geneve made a bunch of these. Um, uh, ESA, which was the predecessor to ETA, which is the company now that makes movements for Swatch Group, hired Max Hetzel away from Belova to come make a tuning fork movement for them. That was the ESA 9162 found in the Omega F300. The um, Obama Mercier had one, Tissot had one. Um, so many different companies cased that up. And so they were the big thing in accuracy between 1960 and about 1972 when they stopped existing because quartz just was more accurate and, and cheaper and easier to maintain. Yeah, they're terrible watches to maintain. They're horribly fiddly. Uh, you have to adjust okay. them just right, but they are they are very cool. So like what you're saying is these tuning fork watches are not quartz watches. No, not at all. Not a single bit. Uh, they are battery powered, um, but they are not even the first battery powered watch to not have quartz. Um, so they use the battery to keep the tuning fork vibrating using a system of electromagnets. But in quartz watches, it's quartz vibrating that keeps the time. In tuning fork watches, there is no quartz. The tuning fork itself uh, keeps the time. Okay. Wow. Okay. I've learned a lot. I've <laughs> learned a lot in this podcast. Right. Never knew that. I'm going to finish here because I, I could just keep going on. I mean, I've got questions in my head, but I think I'll message you privately. But I'm glad that um, you did reach out um or i reached out to you actually come to think i'm so that. glad you did and um you know i've had the fortune of meeting a lot of collectors in the past and i don't think i've met a person who collects with the same philosophy or with the same detail that's crazy <laughs> uh, and also you're like that history teacher i had at school that could just pull out dates and numbers like mm -hmm. like not even out without thought yeah. anyway like i said it's been an absolute pleasure to to learn from you raven mm -hmm.
Thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure to, to have a chance to talk about some of this stuff and, and hear how some of it resonates with you. All right, we now go on to the reverso round. So you are allowed to ask us a question now. Wonderful. All right, well, uh, Dan, I'll start with you. So obviously we've had a chance to talk back and forth a, a bit about watches and, and my collecting philosophy and how I trace chronometry through time. But what I'd love to hear from you is, you know, when you think about the other collectors that you've had a chance to meet and talk about what's important to them, you know, I think of my collecting as very top down. There's a theme and then you find watches that fit that theme. But in your experience, you know, what would you say is the most important thing that bottom-up collectors are thinking about? Collectors who are focused not on one overarching theme, but find individual references, individual pieces that speak to them. What are some of the things that drive their passion in the pieces they find, whether that's you or other collectors you've spoken to? Mm. You see, I think in some ways, right? Like you're fortunate that the way you collect is so niche because I don't think you're affected by that many people. And I think collectors that I meet normally are a part of a group or they know other collectors. And I definitely think a group mentality or such a large group affects your own kind of direction, or it may take you longer to find um, something that you, you particularly resonate with. Um, I would say rarity, mm -hmm. like true rarity, mm -hmm. uh, things that are very, um, yeah, we're producing a very low number and maybe no longer produced. So actually a lot of things that you say, uh, now you've brought my attention to, I can actually feel part of like part of me being attracted to it because of, oh, there's only so many pieces of it, you know, um, and they're never going to be produced again. And I also want to look and I guess it's the hunt, isn't it? The hunt of mm -hmm. looking for these pieces and that exhilaration you get when you do find it uh, makes it all like worthwhile. Um, it's just there's so many watches now on the market. Uh, you can't buy them all. Mm -hmm. um and so i guess a lot of people would tend to gravitate to well certainly i tend to gravitate to things that are not easily accessible um and that's usually also replicated somewhat not all the time as you've proven by price mm -hmm. the rarer the rarer something is it tends to be more expensive like you mentioned mm -hmm. you know if the guy knew more about the imperial vfa maybe he would have charged more um something like that um so I think those things matter the most to a lot of collectors. Um, but then, you know, I work in an auction house, which kind of peddles that kind <laughs> of narrative. Sure. Uh, probably probably why I work at the auction house, because I'm like mm -hmm. one of those people. Um, so I probably do meet a very small window of collectors, you know, because of the way it's my job. Mm -hmm. So I don't get to see a, a wider range now. Makes sense. Um, thank you. So Lung Lung, I guess, you know, what I'd love to, to ask you about, which I've always been curious, um, you know, you are very obviously plugged into a community of watch collectors, right? Just going through your posts or going through some of your priorities, going through the things that you've done, the articles you've written, uh, being on this podcast. So I guess one thing I'd love to hear from you is just how do you, um, 
how do you find the kinds of collectors that you want to be in a community with? Because there are so many watch collectors out there, right? Mm-hmm. And some that I think would would fit into someone's style and collecting interests and just interpersonal way of dealing with people mm-hmm. and some that wouldn't. So how do you carve a niche for yourself in the global community of watch collectors that you find fulfilling, uh, find people that uh, enrich your collecting experience and enrich your life in general? Mm-hmm. How do you build those connections and, and what's your priority when you do that? Um, it kind of sounds cheesy in my answer, but I think we always say it's more about the collector than the watches, right? Mm-hmm. And I think um, contrary to like what Dan said about like, there are people who collect by theme. I'm actually like over time, I've realized I'm really drawn to people who collect very randomly. So there's no specific theme. But the thing that I find really attractive is the fact that they can explain very clearly why they have a specific piece in their collection. Mm-hmm. And it can go from modern vintage, modern vintage, and the time frame between one purchase and another can be really short, actually, or it could be really long. And the story could even just be like, oh, because they called me and they offered me. But as long as you are very clear why this fits into your collection, I start to see um, tiny little things that say a lot about the person's character and how what kind of lifestyle they live and priorities in life and what kind of person they want to be so I think I think maybe two two to three years ago when I first started out I was kind of like in the dark just trying to meet whoever I thought had a piece I've never seen before and flesh Mm -hmm. so I would reach out to them and I'll I'll first look at their collection and be like whoa I'll never get to see this I'll I'll ask them to meet And then slowly over time, you get to see everything. Then it just, I started to think about what kind of energy do I want to be around? What kind of people do I want to be around? And what kind of people do I want to sit down with, talk about everything more than just watches and walk away Mm -hmm. being like, okay, I learned something about life. So I think over time, I kind of curated this little group of people that I'm very comfortable going back to. And there are times where maybe in six months, no one's gotten something new. No one has done anything significant or changed anything in their lives, but you can kind of go, okay, but we're all kind of like moving along in life and you can see a progression, even if they just grew like internally. And I just think it's been very nice for me to be around people like that. And that's how I've chosen, like what kind of collectors I want to be around. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. That sounds great. Cool. Right, we move on to the uh, final part of the interview, which is the pump push around. So, Raven, here we go. You ready? I'm ready. Right. If you could give a go at any job in the world, what would it be? Um, teacher. What would you teach? Um, I've done a couple of, of very small stints teaching mathematics and physics. Um, I'd love to get back to that at some point. Okay. One thing that you're looking most forward to in 2023. Um, in 2023, so I have a trip planned out to a, a cabin in the woods with some friends uh, in the spring. It's going to be probably my first just laid back vacation in many, many years. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Okay. And one thing that you're actually looking to achieve personally in 2023. Oh, my goodness. Um, I guess what I'll say is uh, I would love to have a chance to finally start um, 
a little bit of a more structured online catalog of some of the pieces that I have. Uh, right now I have some things scattered across Instagram or Reddit, but uh, no place that I really feel like is a way to look at the whole collection at once. Oh, I look forward to that if you do that. Right, next one. Uh, tell me one piece of good news you've received in the last week or month. Um, I would say uh, my uh, my mother got uh, ill and has uh, been getting better. So I'm very happy about that. Great. If you were to gift one of your pieces out of your collection to a loved one, which one would you, which one would it be? I think what it would be is, um, I'm going to give you two because it, it just, sometimes it has to be that way. Uh, one of them would be uh, the 1948 Rolex QA. Uh, this is a, a piece that also was an observatory chronometer in the 1940s. Uh, aside from Seiko, GP, and Waltham, this is the fourth manufacturer to ever make them. Uh, and this is my favorite. It's a wonderful size. It's lady size, um, runs beautifully, has a wonderful dial, and I've bonded with it so much. Um, so I think it'd be a, a fantastic keepsake. Uh, and the other piece that I would mention, uh, which hopefully I'll give someday to a daughter, um, is my great-grandmother's watch, um, which was a, a very basic 1940s uh, election piece, but it's um, it's been in the family for a long time. All right, and last one, one person you'd love to meet, alive or past, um, and what would you ask him or her? I think, um, my goodness. Well, in this, in the spirit of, of what we're doing here, I guess what I would say is I would love a ha to uh, have a chance to. Uh, there's uh, someone who lived many, many many years ago, um, Poincaré. So Poincaré was a, a mathematician who worked on basically everything because back then mathematicians worked on everything. And I'd love to just sit down and say, you know, you really haven't done anything in number theory. Uh, maybe you should. I'd love to just put that idea in his head and then come back to the modern day and, and see what he came up with. <laughs> okay. All right. That finishes our part one of the interview with Raven. Did you enjoy your time on the show? I had a great time. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. Please stay tuned for the second interview, which I'm sure you'll find very fascinating. I can't wait to get my teeth into it. Thank you to Raven for coming on and we will see you on the next one. Bye. As always, thank you for listening to The Waiting List Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at The Waiting List Podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.